Good morning. Blessing to be here today. We've been blessed with a really wonderful prayer service and song service, and we appreciate everybody putting your efforts and your energy into making that something that lifts us up spiritually, which is part of what our service is supposed to do, and it certainly glorifies God. You know, the book of Psalms says the Lord inhabits the praise of His people, and when we're praising God in song, He dwells in that sound and in that act of worship that that means so much to us. So when you think about it that way, it's really awesome to be here. Maybe more than mortal mind can comprehend. I want to talk to you today about the consequences of sin. The eternal consequence of separation from God is something we understand. And that's something we need to revisit in our thoughts frequently to encourage one another to understand that you know, sin comes at a cost and sin can eternally destroy. In this morning's study, that, that may be a, a sort of an unspoken undercurrent in the things that we talk about, but I really want to focus attention on the consequences of sin in this life. And it's, it's difficult for me to talk about. I'll, I'll just tell you what I say every time I preach this sermon. When I was building this sermon several months ago now, I could tell I, I'm going to hate this sermon. And, and I, I just don't like talking about it. It's built around the story of David's life. We start with his episode with Bathsheba, and if you're not familiar with that, you will be in a moment. And it moves forward in time. And it just hurts when you're looking at a story and there's this great hero or heroine that you're looking up to and you admire them and, and at every turn they're doing something great and then all of a sudden you find out they're all too human <laughs> and they break down and they fail and it, you just can't stand to see that part of the story. And that's how David's life strikes me. A man of remarkable faith and fidelity and uncommon strength and determination to do the right will and to watch him mess up really big and see the consequences that followed that like falling dominoes, that hurts. And I think part of the reason it hurts so much is I look at that with David and I wonder, when have I been that guy? We really need to be real with ourselves and with each other. We're tempted to sin. Sin tempts us because sin is alluring to the flesh. Sin is fun or the flesh wouldn't want to do it. And in our battle against those temptations, as children of God or as people that would aspire to become children of God, we need help. We need motivation. We need something to counterbalance the, the momentary allure that sin brings to the flesh and understand the hard pain and misery that sin brings, and to grasp thoroughly the concept that when God says, Thou shalt not, He's not trying to ruin our fun. He's not trying to make life dull. He's trying to keep us from hurting ourselves and destroying ourselves now and eternally. And we may not always understand that, especially in that hour when the, when the temptations are growing fierce. We may struggle to understand that, but we need to grasp that as best we can and hang on to that. And that's the intent of this morning's study, to arm ourselves with scriptural truth that we can fall back on and call to mind when temptation becomes so brutal. And we can realize that, you know, as, as fun as it might seem or as helpful or whatever it might seem to give in in the moment, Long-term, it destroys. And I hope you can see that in the course of the study this morning. Proverbs 13 and 15 speaks the principle that this sermon is intended to embrace and convey. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. <clears throat> Some translations put that the way of the transgressor is hard. Somebody who breaks the will of God routinely, somebody who falls into a pattern and a habit of sin, routinely, that person is bringing difficulty on their life. They're bringing consequences. And the sorrowful thing about sin's consequences, it's not just for them, but that affects others 
that their life encounters, their close friends, their family, others nearby. It doesn't just hurt that one person. There is no such thing as I'm not hurting anybody. That sometimes we tell ourselves about sin that, well, I'm not hurting anybody. Sin always hurts. It hurts the person who's committing it, and it brings that agony in a way that it will spread to other lives. We'll see that evident in the story we studied together this morning. Psalms 107 and verse 17 explains the same idea in similar words. He said, fools, ouch. Ouch is a word supplied by the translators, by the way. He's calling us fools when we give in to sin. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Sin brings affliction. Sin brings problem. Now, I want to be clear. These passages are not saying that every time you have a problem, it's because back the clock up somewhere and you did some sin to bring that problem on. <clears throat> That's not what he's teaching. Job's friends thought that in the book of Job about Job, that all those problems Job had was because somewhere along the way Job sinned, and so he deserved all that. And they were wrong. They were so wrong, in fact, God said, I won't hear their prayers. And Job had to make a sacrifice for them. I won't accept their sacrifice. So let's not make the mistake of thinking that, well, something bad happened. You know, I had a flat tire on the way to work, and I was already late. And my wife burnt my Pop-Tarts this morning, and the coffee was dreadfully bitter, and so God must be mad at me. Wonder what I did yesterday. Let's not think like that. But let's understand that when we do sin, that sin by its nature brings problems. And those problems don't just affect us in a negative way. They affect other people. Sometimes problems come in life for different reasons than sin. Except, of course, for the original sin that brought all that upon us. But you understand what I mean. Sometimes there are problems that aren't connected to some specific thing I've done. But when I do some specific thing, I'm inviting trouble. And the story of King David will illustrate that for us. So let's turn and read about his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2 through 4. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. It really hurts to read about our hero of faith, you know, the guy that slayed Goliath, the guy that tried so hard to work with Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. Those of you who are more deeply familiar with David's life, you can back up here and see that so many good things he did and so many moments where he could have failed and he just wouldn't. And now in a, in a moment of rooftop weakness, well, she's pretty. That's alluring. You can try to gloss that over and tell ourselves, you know, that shouldn't appeal, but the narrative admits she's pretty. And David is on the cusp of a choice. I can turn my eyes and turn my thoughts and go back inside and, you know, do whatever else, or I can pursue this. And he made a very unfortunate and unwise and powerfully destructive choice. And he didn't stop there. In case you're not familiar with the story, I'll tell you Bathsheba wound up with child as a result of this sin. And David got busy trying to cover it up, what he had done, because her husband Uriah was out in the battlefield. It couldn't have been his child, you see. And so he makes arrangements to bring Uriah home from the war so it'll look like that the baby that's coming is his baby. And Uriah and all this nobility is, you know, my, my brother's soldiers are out there, you know, sleeping, so I'm not going to be with my wife and all the comforts of home. I'm going to sleep on the ground. And so David says, well, let's get him drunk. And, and, and oh, no, he's not going to do it. And so David says, well, let's get him dead then. And David's sin was so deep and so corrupting, and in such a short moment on the rooftop, it had totally twisted him to become such an ugly monster that would turn on his loyal, mighty man of valor and give his generals the unbelievable order that says, 
put him up in the heat of the battle and then back him back away from him and leave him alone to die. And I'll make his wife my own. Oh, that hurts. Sin corrupted David, and sin will corrupt me and you. We cannot let it get a toehold. Proverbs 15 and 27 speaks specifically about the general principle with which we opened our study. We opened our study with sin destroys. This speaks specifically about the sin of greed. Proverbs 15 and 27 says, He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. Now, if I was sitting in your seat, and, and, and you know I'm sitting at this point in the sermon, and I hear the guy bring up Proverbs 15 27 in the middle of the David and Bathsheba story, I'm sitting there trying to say, where on earth is he going with this, with greed? What's that got to do with David? Well, think about it for a moment, and, and you'll see it clearly. Greed is covetousness for wealth. So greed is a specific kind of sin of covetousness. And the law said, thou shalt not covet. Your neighbor's possessions, you know, his money, his property, and you know what else he added to that? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. David was experiencing a different kind of greed on that rooftop, wasn't he? If you know the story, you can look back and, and see. God had made promises for the family of David. God wanted David's household to be large, so God allowed David to have several wives. And when you go back and read how he obtained those different ladies, you know, they were all beautiful women. He had options. But he coveted his neighbor's wife. He was greedy for what someone else had. This passage, think about it, penned by David's son Solomon. Wonder if Solomon thought about dad when he wrote this. This passage says, when you let greed grab your heart, it will destroy your family. And that's what we're about to see happen in the life of David. So if it hurts to bring our hearts to the rooftop there and stand with David and watch his series of mistakes that he made, if that hurts, I'm just going to tell you it's really going to hurt to see the consequences that followed. The amazing thing is as terrible as that was, God forgave David. In the wake of that sin, Nathan the prophet came to David and told him this story about a guy who had a lot of sheep. He had plenty of sheep, and the other fellow who's poor only has one, and the guy with a lot of sheep went and took the guy's one sheep, and David said, well, we got to do something about this. And then Nathan says, you're the man. You're the guy that did this. It's not a fellow with sheep. It's a man with wives, and you went and took in Uriah's only wife. And it convicted David. In 2 Samuel 12 and 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Under the law, David could have died for this. He could have been stoned to death. But it wasn't an automatic, oh, he sinned to commit of a, uh, committed adultery, he's going to be stoned to death. It wasn't automatic. There had to be a proper court case. There had to be proper eyewitnesses that testified to what he did, and then those eyewitnesses had to be the first one to throw stones. That's part of the, the law that God had attached to their death penalty. When someone was stoned to death, the eyewitnesses against that person, if you're going to lie about somebody on the stand, you've got to be willing to chunk rocks at them, okay? If you're going to testify truthfully against somebody in a way that brings them under the death penalty, you've got to be willing to throw the first rocks that puts them to death. You get to flip the switch, to put it in modern terms. So there was a kind of a safety valve built in, and none of that was happening here. I mean, there were attendees to the king at the palace that knew kind of what was going on, but there's no testifying going on. So David's not going to be put to death, but he's still got guilt before God. And he does the only thing a child of God can do in his moment of realizing his guilt. He confesses his sin to God and seeks mercy. And God, be amazed. God grants it. God forgives him. Now, I want you to notice something about this. After God forgave David, I want you to notice what David did. 
Psalms 51, the chapter title, which is supplied by scribes, says David wrote this song after his episode with Bathsheba and after Nathan the prophet came and rebuked him and said, you're forgiven, okay? And when you read Psalms 51, it's evident. The scribes are right. That's what this is about. And I want you to notice what David did. Opening up this song, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Now I want you to notice a handful of things here from this passage. Number one, I want you to notice the psychological damage that David did to himself in his sin. He said, my sin is always before me. Here's what David is singing. I messed up and I can't get it out of my mind. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop regretting. You ever have those moments? Well, I never committed a sin like David did, you know, there in 2 Samuel. Okay, whatever other sin it was, you ever have those moments where you're just like, oh, I can't believe I did that. And you want so bad to back up the clock and, and get a mulligan, you know, get a redo. Let's try over and let's not make this mistake again. Whether it might seem comparatively small or comparatively big, there are times our sin really vexes us. God tells us not to do things in part because of the psychological damage that they do. And God is the one who created the human psyche. And He knows more about it than all the universities of the modern world combined. He knows what sin does to her, our psyche. And so he knew that sin would destroy David. And here David is with the wounded psyche. My sin is always before me. It's just like it's right there in front of me. I can't believe I did that. That's one thing I want us to note. Here's something else I want you to notice. And I'm going to attach a story to this. One time I was working with a congregation and the prayers during the assembly were typical prayers you will hear as you gather here. There was frequent mention in practically every prayer, Lord, please forgive us of our sins. Very appropriate. And one guy had the idea to chastise everybody and say, why, why are you always praying for forgiveness of sin? Do you not trust God that he would forgive you the, when we prayed that after the fourth song? And here you are at the table praying it again, and then you say it again in the closing prayer. What, what's your problem? Did you not trust God to forgive you? Well, one thing you got to do is stop and ask yourself, did I trust God to forgive me? Well, yeah. Well, his question then was, well, then why are you asking again? And my answer is because the Bible says God is near those that are a broken and contrite heart. That's how we're supposed to be. If we pray, Lord, forgive us, that doesn't mean we don't believe He forgave us the last time we asked. That means we're displaying to God, look, my heart's broken over this. I'm humble before you. I know I depend on you. After Nathan the prophet said, the Lord has put this, way of sin, put this sin away from you, after that, David said, have mercy, blot out, wash, cleanse, four times. In a row, he re-said, Lord, forgive me. Why? When he said, blot out, did he not trust God forgave when he said, have mercy? By the time he got to cleanse, was it, did he have a faith issue with the first three requests? No. It's not a betrayal of good faith. It's an expression of good faith and humility. And that's how David is treating the psychological damage he did to himself with this sin. He's going back to God and he's showing a broken and contrite heart. But Nathan said, God has put this sin away from you. Are any of you thinking about that psalm where he talks about, you know, the Lord removing our sin from us as far as the east is from the west? I mean, how far apart is that? When Nathan told David, God has removed this sin from you, he, God's taken away David's guilt as far as you can move it. Before the throne, David was innocent in that moment, but he still needed to say, for his own sake, for his healing's sake, he needed to say, Lord, please forgive me. 
That doesn't mean he doubted Nathan's word or God's promise. That means he believed in it and he wanted to humble himself before it. But Nathan also told David there's going to be consequences for what you've done. It's like Samuel 12 backing up to verse 10 through 12. Now therefore the, sh- the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, or excuse me, yes, before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel, before the son." So Nathan is giving David the unhappy news. There are consequences to your sin. Now, as you read this, you might think, okay, God's fixing to punish David. He's going to proactively intervene in David's life and cause a sequence of events to happen that will be a punishment to David. Well, then you read the very next verse, and he says, God's put away your sins. So what do we have? We have God says, I'm forgiving you, but I'm not going to forget And I'm going to keep causing terrible things to happen to you to make sure you know that I forgave you, but I'm still kind of mad. That's not what's happening. That's not how God forgives. Let's think of it like this. I've got this ink pen. And God created this thing called the law of gravity. Okay? So when I let go of this pen, it's going to drop on the table there. Okay? I chose to let go of that pen. The law of gravity is what made it drop. So I can say, God made this pen fall, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have a choice in the matter. And that's what's going on here in the story of David. God set in motion the spiritual principles we read at the beginning of the study. Sin brings problems. Sin destroys by its very nature. God set in motion the principle we read about in Proverbs 15, when a guy is covetous, For things that are not his, including his neighbor's wife, that brings problems to his family. God created that principle. David made the choice to let the pen go, and that engaged the principles that God authored. So God is saying, look, I've fathered these principles. I created these principles that now say you're going to have calamity in your life because of what you've done. It's not an ongoing spanking, so to speak, from God. It's the natural consequence of David's sin. Think back on that passage in Proverbs 15. A guy that is greedy troubles his family. The sword shall never depart from your house. That's true because of David's greed for his neighbor's wife. I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Because of what David did here and the things that followed, one of his own sons turned against him. God didn't put that thought in David's son's heart. That's the natural consequence of David's sin. And the kicker, you took another man's wife and you did it secretly. Another man's going to take a bunch of yours and everybody's going to know about it. Before all Israel, whose heart wouldn't sink at that word? My heart sinks just thinking about it. I bet yours does too. After Nathan said, God forgives you, 2 Chronicles 12 and 14, he said, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also which is born to you shall surely die. The baby that Bathsheba was carrying was going to have to die. And that's not God saying, oh, you sinned? Well, so I'm going to kill your baby because I'm mad at you. That's not what's happening. God had made a promise to David before this all happened. He had made a promise that the Messiah would be born into the world in his family. And Israel knew about this promise, and they may not have understood its full implications, but they understood a future Messiah was coming to Israel through the family line of David. And from the time of that promise forward, The prophets talked about it. The people talked about it. You go to the first century ministry of Christ, and you'll find people in this ministry talking about, who's the Christ? Well, he's the son of David. 
They understood David was the family that was to bring the Christ into the world. Now imagine the enemies of God and the enemies of that promise and the people of Israel who didn't put their trust in God and who didn't put their trust in what the prophet said. Such people were not in short supply. Imagine those people saying, Oh, well, look what we have here. This guy's supposed to bring the Messiah in the world, and looky, he had his neighbor's wife and got away with it. What kind of a God is this that you're serving? Who operates through such things and such people? And the life of that baby was a constant reminder to that jeering crowd to continue to blaspheme the Lord just like the Lord protested here. So to put a stop to that, the Lord had to remove the baby from that treachery and understand, bring that baby safely home to Abraham's bosom to spare that baby all that they would have heard the rest of their life and to stop the chatter, to stop the blasphemy. It's hard. But David, God has to do this, and it's a consequence of your sin. It's not because God likes doing that to people. It's a consequence of your sin. And it just got worse. Look, David had this idea. I see this woman, and she's pretty, and I want her. Therefore, I get to use my position as king and send emissaries to go and bring her back. Now, insofar as I can tell, the narrative doesn't really specify, but I get the vibe from the story that Bathsheba was a willing participant in all of this. I, I can't really necessarily prove that. Some believe she set the trap for him, you know. I, I, I don't know that I could prove that David took her by force. There's just no language like that in, in the narrative. It's just that he asked and she submitted and the thing happened. So you've got dad making those kind of decisions in the household. Well, I see something I want. I just take it. And in the very next chapter, David has a son who walks in his footsteps. Only as is often the case, whatever mistakes the parents make, sometimes the kids take that up and they make it bigger and uglier. And that's what happened with David's son, Amnon, and David's daughter, Tamar. These two were half-siblings. 2 Samuel 13, 11 to 14, and when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Leading up to this, Amnon sees Tamar and he wants her. Sounds a lot like David's rooftop. And Amnon starts scheming and has people close to him that helps him make this happen. Sounds a lot like David on the rooftop. And messengers are coming here and going there, and the woman is being summoned to the chambers. Sounds an awful lot like David and Bathsheba. Where would Amnon get the idea that if you want something bad enough, you just take it? Well, wherever else he got the idea, he watched his daddy do it. And in his head, he may have been thinking, Dad got away with it. David didn't, but I could see where it would look that way to Amnon because David didn't face the death penalty. You talk about sin, the sin of covetousness destroying your family. This is bad. You try to imagine David as king presiding over this, his family, and your son takes and forces your daughter and, you know, half-siblings here. I mean, as, as disturbing as that is to us to just know that that happened, think of David trying to figure out how to navigate this. Well, he's the king. He's got a duty. Look, under circumstances like this, you could get the death penalty. Look at the law in Deuteronomy 22, 25. If a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. 
Now, there were certain particular circumstances, and you had to have a proper trial and proper witnesses, and the eyewitnesses cast the first stones, and all that had to happen. But you could make a case that Amnon should have faced the death penalty. And whose job is it to make that sort of thing happen in accordance with the law? Look at what Deuteronomy 17 said in verse 14 and 15. As he anticipated the day that Israel would be led by kings, he said, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, and you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So God set the limits. You're going to have one of your own people that's going to be your king. And now let's go to when that happened. When Israel asked for a king, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5. Look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. One of the primary functions of Israel's king was to be their judge, to preside over their legal system. Now in what way was that legal system supposed to be orchestrated? Well, let's go back to the law. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 and 19. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. So the king's responsible to preside over the judicial system, and the king is obligated to make it a fair judicial system that's just and impartial. Well, David can't judge this case justly and without partiality. I mean, that's his daughter that got assaulted. Well, from that perspective, you're thinking, where's the guy? Let's kill him. Well, that's your son that made that terrible mistake. And maybe from that perspective, you're thinking, where is he? Let's kill him. Or maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, this is my son. Let's show him some mercy and give him another chance. You see, David can't preside over it. His job as a king in this instance is to appoint others to tend to that trial. Impartial people who will gather all the facts, look for the eyewitnesses, and properly judicate and litigate this case to see whether or not Amnon is to be put to death. That's his job. So what did David do? When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. What David did was he got mad. End of story. Does that upset you a little bit? I mean, I, I'm thinking of Tamar's dignity here. I'm thinking of her pleading with every bit of reason that she can summon to plead with her brother, don't do this. This is terrible. I'm thinking of her innocence in that, her helplessness. And so you want the king to stand up and do his job and let's have a proper trial and let's, let's have justice. Who doesn't want justice? I'll tell you who doesn't want justice, the guy that's guilty. <laughs> I'm all in favor of justice until it's my turn. Well, I didn't do what Amnon did to Tamar. Okay, what have you done? So let's think. Now, Looking at David as the king in this position of responsibility, how is he going to have any credibility to go to Amnon and say, this ain't going to cut it, buddy. We're getting a trial for you, and there's going to be judges that preside over this thing, and the priests are going to help, and we're going to make sure that justice is done. And Amnon says, oh, you mean like it was with you when you took Bathsheba? David just disarmed himself in a way I'm sure he never imagined when he was standing on the rooftop staring at her. He never dreamed how he would compromise his ability to rule faithfully. The trial that should have happened never did. Another consequence. And a son has the idea that he can take what he wants just because he wants it. Another consequence. Well, Tamar has a full brother named Absalom, and Absalom wasn't too impressed with all of this. So he begins to stir up rebellion. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 22, Absalom's 
spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Hit the pause button. Let's not kid ourselves. There's part of us that's kind of in league with Absalom here. <laughs> we kind of think Amnon needs to die. I know it's got to be done legally, and I understand we're not supposed to get revenge. I get all of that. But in our heart, you know, we kind of like what's happening, and I want us to see that in Absalom's sin of revenge, he's creating some problems too. Skipping on down now to verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. I bet they did. <laughs> oh, man, I'm not going to be next, so they're all getting out of Dodge. And guilty Amnon is just getting stabbed repeatedly by Absalom's enforcers. Look. Dad didn't hold a trial. Dad didn't exact justice. Fine, I'll take justice into my own hands. Another consequence of David's sin. Because David had compromised his ability to rule, he had a son who eventually took rulership in his own hand, and sin's consequence just kept growing. And that created a hole in David's judicial system where it looked like he was weak and wasn't carrying out his duty. And that's the hole that Absalom crawled through when he tried to take the throne. 2 Samuel 15, verse 2 through 4. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Think about that. Was there a deputy of the king to hear Tamar? You see what hole he's crawling through? Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge. Sounds like a politician running for office to me. Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or case would come to me, then I would give him justice. My dad's not a very good king. His justice system is a little lacking. Well, why? Because David's ability to do that was compromised by his own sin. This is just another domino that's falling in consequence of David's rooftop decision. It's just a natural thing to happen. You've got the son there that he's mad that his, his sister was raped by another son. and I, Of course he wants revenge. It's not right, but that's how people are. In chapter 15, now verse 10 through 12, Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy grew strong, for the people of Absalom continually increased in number. Absalom's building forces. He's growing in power. He's on the cusp of overthrowing his dad, and he means to put together an army and kill his father and take the throne. Kind of like David killed Uriah and took the wife. Does it look familiar? Hey, your chickens come home to roost, y'all. It's just a natural consequence of sin. So the overthrow is gathering momentum, and this Ahithophel, this was David's top advisor, and he was clever. Okay, he could routinely out Whataburger a lot of smart politicians. He was the guy you wanted counseling you. And Absalom convinced him to betray David and come over to his side. That's a major, major political event in Israel. So 2 Samuel 16 and 20, as this thing is gaining momentum, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go in to your father's concubines. 
whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hand of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. It's not that his advice was righteous, it was just clever and crafty. You remember Nathan the prophet saying, David, because you've done this, someone's going to come take your wives on the side of all Israel. This is it. Now, sometimes people talk about poetic justice. Look, justice was done upon David's sin when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus bore the penalty for David's adultery, just like Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. But in the way humans see things, this is a moment of poetic justice. From the same rooftop where David stood and lusted for his neighbor's wife and coveted her and schemed for her, his son pitches a tent to take a bunch of his. Uh, It's ugly. One by one. Right there and everybody knows what's going on. It's ugly. How could David's former advisor and cherished close friend give such advice against his former king? I'll tell you how. When I was studying for this thing, I thought, who's Ahithophel? Danny knows. (laughs) I start looking up family lineages and found out this is Bathsheba's grandpa. You think he had revenge on his mind? Oh, the king takes my granddaughter, and now my grandson-in-law is betrayed and virtually murdered in a terrible way, loyal and faithful soldier. And my great-grandbaby is dead. You think he had revenge on his mind? Sin bears a natural consequence, and its fingers grow long into a lot of people's business. And David wasn't just hurting himself in his own psyche. He was hurting Bathsheba, and he was hurting Bathsheba's grandpa, and he was hurting Tamar, and he was hurting, and he was hurting, and he was hurting. It's not just about you and just about me. It's about others who are hurt in spite of what devil lies we tell ourselves that it's my business and I'll do what I want. We're hurting other people when we give in. Well, advice goes sour and things start turning sour and there's a moment where Absalom won't take a hit fell's advice and the rebellion begins to lose steam, and David's winning out. And Ahithophel was so wise, he saw that coming. So let's see what happened next. 2 Samuel 17, 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Just when we thought it couldn't get any worse. Now your wife's grandpa killed himself because of you. And then David's forces carry the battle. And David tells them, don't kill Absalom, but they don't listen. And in 2 Samuel 18, 14 and 15, Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart. And while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree, and ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And then the king was deeply moved, verse 33, when he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. How bitterly he grieved because he knew why Absalom was dead. He had been watching the dominoes fall and he knew it went all the way back to his rooftop some time ago in his moment of folly. I wish I could die in your place. David couldn't. He couldn't bear the sin of Absalom's guilt, for he had sin of his own. Only the Son of God could die 
in someone's stead for stuff like this. It would take a Savior, the Son of God, to be a sacrifice to fix this mess. Let's put it on a diagram. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, so there's blasphemy that's happening, and the child that's the result of that adultery had to die. And then there's an assault on David's daughter because his son is walking in footsteps similar to his own. And there should be a trial, but there wasn't. There was judicial failure. And so because of that, another son commits murder because he's going to see justice done in his twisted way of thinking. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. After that, there's a full-on rebellion trying to crawl through the crack that was left there in David's judicial system. And that rebellion resulted in an advisor turning his back against you and that advisor is your adulteress's grandpa. And that advisor says, take the concubines. And then Absalom dies, but Ahithophel killed himself. Now, let's think about the spot that David's in. Bathsheba's his wife. That's the prize he wanted, right? That's what he couldn't live without on that rooftop, right? That's what sin said would be so wonderful, Right? Well, let's get up next to David and help him figure this out. You're married to Bathsheba, and you've got to make this work. Because of you, her latest baby is dead. Because of you, her husband is dead. Because of you, her grandpa betrayed the king. Because of you, her grandpa is dead. Because of you, because of you, because of you, look at all that happened to Bathsheba. And David's got to walk home to the palace, open the door, and announce, Honey, I'm home. <laughs> Let's have a great marriage now and all love each other. Figure out how to make that work. David was wading through neck-deep mud of his own making. The consequence of sin. You think about that. The next time sin feels enticing. But there's good news. And I want to take just a moment to tell you the good news. All that pain heaped upon David, David's over every bit of it today. Because God forgave him and he found salvation in God. And there are scriptures where he sang about that. Psalms 38, the first eight verses. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply. Your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden there too heavy for me to bear. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. My loins are full of a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sorely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. This is the psychological damage of David's adultery. He can't stand the guilt. But he found mercy with God. Psalms 41 and 4. I said to the Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And God kept His promise and God forgave. Psalms 32, verse 3 through 5. When I kept silent, that's before he confessed to Nathan the prophet, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned to the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. There are those, amidst the confusion about the word Selah, there are those who think it's a musical designation that basically says, pause and reflect. So we'll go with that. And David says, look at all the things I did to hurt myself with my sin. Stop and think about it. But look how God forgave me when I confessed and made things right. Stop and think about it. There's relief. There's help. Psalms 18 is a song that David wrote about all of the victories that God gave him. It starts early in his life and works its way forward. And we'll look at just a fraction of that song. 
Verse 4 through 6, the pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple, and my cry came before Him, even to His ears. With Uriah's blood on his hand, and with David's adultery upon his loins, but a repentant and contrite heart. He cried out to God. In moments of distress that followed, he cried out to God, Lord, I know I've done this to myself. Please help me. And in his holy and perfect and pure temple, his high and lofty place in heaven, God listened. Because David's heart was contrite. God bent his ear to David's prayers, and he listened. He didn't shield David from all the consequences of his sin, but he listened. And things gradually got better. And the dust finally settled from Absalom's rebellion, and David followed that, going out and fighting wars and gaining victories and lived to be a ripe old age, made preparations to build God's temple there in Jerusalem, and peacefully died. Because of God's mercy, he saw a happier end. That didn't undo all the damage that his sin had caused, but things got better. I want you to know, before God, feel every bit of the misery that sin can bring. Just understand that with God, it can get better. Psalms 32 and 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. There was a day that calamity and ruin surrounded David. But because he repented and returned against his sin and humbled himself before God, God's mercy just continued to build a hedge around him and surround him. And finally, David found peace. And you and I can too. I want you to leave this study today feeling motivated to fight sin with every tool that God gives us, fight sin. In that dark and lonely hour of the strongest temptations, remember the cost of sin. And when you break over and you give in and you make the mistake that you wish with everything you've got that you hadn't made, lean on God's mercy. Don't run from Him in fear. Run to Him in fear and humble yourself before Him and seek His help. It may not fix everything that goes wrong in this life, but you'll have eternity with Him. And every tear that we cry because of our sin will be wiped away in an overflow of God's mercy that's there for anyone who will come and find it. Will you come and find His mercy this morning? Will you become a Christian? If you're a Christian and sin has overwhelmed you, will you seek His help by prayer? If we can help you in either way, please come while we stand and sing.